Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and will be called Son of God. Another familiar reading, this time from Matthew, chapter 1, reading 18 uh, to 26. The birth of Jesus the Messiah. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they had lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital, marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. There is a wonderful scene in the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian where Brian's mother has been trying to convince the crowd that has gathered outside their house that Brian is not, in fact, the son of God. She utters the immortal lines, which you can say along with me if you like, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. And then something interesting happens. One of the men in the crowd says to her, excuse me, are you a virgin? Brian's mother replies in a scandalised voice, I beg your pardon? The man goes on, Well, if it's not a personal question, are you a virgin? Brian's mother answers, If it's not a personal question, 
How much more personal can you get? And tells him and the crowd in no uncertain terms to go away. As the window on the house bangs shut, the crowd starts to mutter, bet she is. And so the story of Brian's virgin birth begins. It is a genuinely funny scene from a brilliant film, and it raises some questions for us to consider this morning. Firstly, it raises the question of the origin of the virgin birth stories that are told about Jesus. And as we conclude our anti-lectionary series, at least for now, in which we've been tackling from the pulpit some issues not normally preached on in church, we'll be spending some time today thinking about the virgin birth stories in the Gospels. But secondly, the Python film raises for us the question of gender. You see, Brian's mother is played by Terry Jones, doing a humorous, squeaky girl's voice. And as I come to speak on this topic, I'm very aware that there are big problems with men speaking about and for women, particularly on issues as sensitive as sex and childbirth. For example, is it okay for me to discuss publicly questions about the virginity of a teenage girl, even if that girl is Mary, the mother of Jesus? It's problematic, and I just want to own that. I do recognise that I stand in a long line of men who have done precisely this over the last 2,000 years, starting with the two men who wrote the two Gospels in which the virgin birth traditions are found. And it is uncomfortable, to say the least, to reflect that many of the issues we will be considering are issues that have emerged from the minds of men. So, as we turn to these passages, we will need to recognise the part, that part of the problem before us is a long tradition of male-dominated readings of Mary's life, sex life, and sexuality. And so to the topic of today's sermon. Is a virgin birth inconceivable? In the interest of showing my working, I'd like to say how helpful I've found a couple of books in preparing for this week. Firstly, uh, Kyle Roberts' book, A Complicated Pregnancy, Whether Mary Was a Virgin and Why It Matters. And secondly, Andrew Lincoln, who actually taught Liz and I New Testament, has written a magisterial book, Born of a Virgin, Reconceiving Jesus. And I commend both of these books to you if you want to do some further reading on this, because I can't do it all in 25 minutes. Those of you who are here for my sermon on Do Miracles Happen won't be surprised to know that I bring an interest in science and logic to the questions of the miraculous conception of Jesus. And here's the thing. At a scientific level, humans don't have virginal conceptions. Some animals do, some insects, some amphibians, and weirdly, I have discovered, sharks have the ability for a mother to become spontaneously pregnant, with the offspring being composed entirely of DNA drawn from the mother. But this has never been observed in humans. But let's suppose that Jesus was miraculously the first and only human example of this happening, 
He would have been comprised entirely of DNA from Mary, which would have meant that he would have had to have been female because the Y chromosome is not carried in women. That is, unless um, Mary's mother was, uh, sorry, unless Mary was a hermaphrodite, which, while not impossible, there are human hermaphrodites, it is extremely unlikely, particularly as there are no recorded cases of a human hermaphrodite having both types of functioning gonadal tissue. And that's a phrase I never thought I'd give in a sermon. In short, I don't think there is a natural explanation for the story of Jesus' birth if he is born of a virgin. Either this is a miracle that violates the laws of nature, as uh, David Hume, the 18th century philosopher, defined miracle, or it didn't happen. I think that's the choice that we have before us. So, was Jesus born of a virgin? Let's consider the biblical evidence. The story of the virginity of Mary is found only in two books of the Bible, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the readings that we had a few moments ago. There is no mention of the virgin birth in Mark or John, and Paul seems entirely unaware of it in his writings. In fact, in the Pauline letters, which are some of the earliest documents we have from the New Testament, Paul's letters were written in the 50s, whereas Mark, the earliest of the Gospels, was written in the early 60s. In Paul's letters, he makes four references to the parentage of Jesus. And in each case, Paul seems to have assumed that Jesus was born by natural processes. So in Galatians 3.5, he speaks of Jesus as the seed of Abraham, which infers descent through the male line. In Galatians 4, Paul says that Jesus was God's son born of a woman under the law, but makes no mention of Mary's virginity, even though it would have helped his argument at this point to do so. In Romans, Paul speaks of Jesus as the son of God descended from David according to the flesh, and then goes on to declare that Jesus is the son of God according to the power of the spirit. And in 2 Timothy 2, Eight, um, the author, which may or may not be Paul at this point, says that Jesus is a descendant of David. Now, I recognize that we must be very wary of arguments from silence, but Paul's silence on this issue is surely not insignificant. In Mark's Gospel, the earliest of the four Gospels, written some years after Paul's death, there is no infancy narrative at all. Uh, if you read the beginning of Mark, Jesus just appears in the wilderness as an adult to be baptized by John. We do, a bit later in Mark, get glimpses of Jesus' mother and his brothers. They pop up in a couple of places. In chapter 3, Jesus seems to disown them, and in chapter 6, people take offence at Jesus and belittle him, saying, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Matthew, probably the next gospel to be written after Mark, introduces a short infancy narrative, which we had read to us just now where the main point seems to be that God has broken into our world in a new way to bring the long-awaited salvation for Israel. And Matthew, fairly typically, because he does this all the way through the Gospel, ties it back in with the Old Testament. And he does this uh, in the infancy narrative by quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, uh, which reads, Look! 
The young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which Matthew then goes on to say means God with us. Uh, He actually slightly misquotes the Old Testament at this point. The Hebrew word here means young woman, but he's quoting it from the Greek where it's been translated into the word for virgin, which is where Matthew then pulls uh, his word virgin from. Interestingly, a bit later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 13, he repeats almost word for word Mark's story about people taking offence at Jesus and naming his mother and brothers and sisters. It's quite likely Matthew just copied this bit directly from Mark's Gospel, which scholars think he had in front of him as he wrote his version of the story of Jesus. John's Gospel does its own weird, mystical version of the incarnation, telling us that the word became flesh and lived among us. That's chapter 1, verse 14. And going on to say that all who believe in Jesus' name can receive the power from God to become children of God. So again, no mention of the virgin birth, and actually an inference that everybody can become a son of God or a child of God like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So, uh, there's no mention of it in in Hebrews or Revelation or the non-Pauline letters either. So we're down to just our two passages, really, from Matthew and Luke's Gospels. And actually, there is this debate to be had here about whether they describe it as a virgin birth or a virginal conception. Now, you might think that I'm splitting hairs here. But trust me, a lot of ink has been spilled on this one. From as early as the second century, the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity has been a thing. Oregon, the early church father, went so far as to suggest that Jesus' siblings were actually his half-siblings because he believed that Mary remained a virgin until her death and that therefore the brothers and sisters that are named must have been Joseph's children by a previous marriage, who he brought into the family. Uh, You may not have heard of it before, but Mary's perpetual virginity has been the dominant view of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and some Protestant traditions, including Martin Luther, Thomas Cranmer, and John Wesley. The idea here is that Mary not only conceived Jesus miraculously, but also gave birth miraculously, thus preserving her virginity. By this understanding, Jesus did not have a normal birth, but was miraculously removed from Mary's womb when the time came for him to be born. You kind of get the impression that she could have done it with her legs crossed. This might all seem like a tangent, but... It actually speaks quite strongly about Christian attitudes towards sex, sexual purity, virginity, and sex outside of marriage. Even to this day, many Christians are obsessed with what goes where and when and with whom. From debates around same-sex marriage to singleness and celibacy to divorce and remarriage, I sometimes get the impression that the church is more concerned about sex than it is about justice, mercy, and faith, as Jesus once put it. Within patriarchal Christianity, virginity has often been seen as a valuable product to be preserved and traded. 
As fathers give their so-called respectable daughters to their husbands, along with an appropriate dowry as an assurance of good faith. And consecrated virginity has become an ideal, with celibate priests, monks, nuns, and sisters being held up as the kind of paragon of the spiritual life. The dominant view has been that those who have sullied themselves with sex, even sex within marriage, are not suited for the most holy orders. The pathway to holiness has historically been virginity, and no one has been more virginal or holy than Mary. Now, I note that in the church more recently, there's been a shift on this, with a married clergy leading to an idealized form of family life. I've certainly been around churches where those who are child-free, childless, unmarried, or divorced are regarded as in some way secondary to the ideal of the holy clergy family of daddy, mummy, and two children. And all of this comes to us from a Christian tradition obsessed with sex as sinful. To be accommodated within marriage for the procreation of children, but definitely not the kind of thing that a nice girl like the Blessed Virgin Mary would ever get up to, even if she did have to bear a child. Part of this squeamishness about mixing sex and religion comes from Augustine's doctrine of original sin. The idea that sin passes down the generations through sexual reproduction from Adam to the present day. The logic runs that if Jesus is to be born sinless, then there has to have been a break with the inherited sinfulness of man. And so, if he's born of a virgin with no earthly father, he's spared the inheritance of original sin on his father's side. So it contributes to the sinlessness of Jesus. But, the logic runs, for Jesus to be truly free of original sin, he also has to be free of it on his mother's side too. And so, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary emerged, which is the belief that Mary's mother was also a virgin at the time of Mary's birth, having herself experienced a miraculous conception. This belief goes right back to the early church fathers, but Pope Pius IX declared it to be an infallible truth for the Roman Catholic Church in 1854. You may not have realized it, but if you visit a church called something like the Immaculate Conception, they're not actually talking about the conception of Jesus. They're talking about the conception of his mother. Anyway, we have some decisions to begin to make here. Does it matter to us if Mary is perpetually virginal? Or is it okay from our point of view that Jesus was born in the normal way through the birth canal and that Mary then went on to have sex with her husband and give birth to further children? If we're okay with that, we have already disregarded some key aspects of the doctrine of the virgin birth as far as historical Orthodox Christianity is concerned. We just need to note that and know that. Also, does it matter to us if Mary was herself conceived miraculously, with her mother being a virgin when she gave birth to Mary? Because if we're okay with that not being the case, 
then we're disagreeing with one of the very few infallible statements ever issued by a pope on a core doctrine. Just need to know that. Also, do we accept the idea of original sin? Are children born sinful because of Adam? Or are sins what we learn to do as we learn to rebel against God, who makes each one of us in our mother's womb? If we accept original sin, we probably should start baptising babies again just in case they die in a state of damnation. But if we reject it, as Baptists historically have done, we are rejecting an essential aspect of Augustinian theology of the virgin birth. Anyway, moving on. Medical science has revealed some wonderful things, not least among them an understanding of how human reproduction works at both a practical and genetic level. The discovery of DNA and the notion of X and Y chromosomes determining together uh, gender have revolutionized processes such as fertility treatment. However, at the time of the birth of Jesus, people were not so enlightened. They thought that the woman's body already contained within it all that was necessary for a new life to begin. The role of the male in the process was simply to activate the pregnancy. Uh, they thought it was through generating heat, and this triggered the process. Gosh, there are so many things I'm saying in this sermon that I never thought I'd say from the front. Anyway, um, stories such as we find in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, which suggest that a woman becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit, are therefore simply suggesting that it is the Spirit of God which provides the kind of spark to activate the process instead of the man doing it. It's still a miracle, but from their point of view, it wouldn't have been seen as a biological contradiction. Early theologians saw the virgin birth as the mechanism for full incarnation. It was the process by which God became fully human. They didn't see it as a biological problem, which might in some way make Jesus less than human. You see, the problem we've got here is that a scientific understanding of uh, a kind of miraculous generating of the Y chromosome and 50% of the DNA that goes to make up Jesus is where, where on earth does that come from? Uh, did, does God miraculously reduplicate Joseph's DNA to make Jesus? Uh, or does he manufacture it out of nowhere? And if he manufactures it out of nowhere, is Jesus then half human and half God and in a kind of not fully human way? You see the logical complexities that modern science raises for us about this story. It simply would not have occurred to Matthew and Luke that the logic of the incarnation of God in the flesh of Jesus might be undermined by the idea of a virginal conception. And here we have a problem. The incarnation is the belief that God became fully human in Jesus. But a modern understanding of human reproduction puts a miraculous conception in conflict with the idea of Jesus being fully human. If half his DNA came from God, then is he fully human? And if he's half God, half man, rather than, as Christian orthodoxy has always sought to assert, fully God and fully man, then we're in the difficult territory of some of the heresies addressed by the early church. 
So let me tell you about the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which considered two of these heresies, known as Docetism and Adoptionism. Docetism was the belief that Jesus was fully God, but not truly human. And adoptionism was the belief that Jesus was fully human, but not truly God. Docetism taught that uh, Jesus was a kind of phantasm or projection of God. He looked human, but his true essence was all God. A bit like a kind of souped-up version of Princess Leia's hologram in Star Wars. Indistinguishable from reality, but still not fully real. That was docetism. Adoptionism, on the other hand, taught that Jesus was fully human and that he was adopted by God at some point in his life, either at conception or at birth or at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descends on him. In this way, Jesus is more like a specially chosen human than he is God incarnate in human flesh. And both of these views had their origins in a thing called Platonic dualism which was a pre-Christian idea from Greek philosophy that everything has two natures, a physical nature, the substance, and a non-physical nature, the shadow. What was wrong around? Um, the Council of Chalcedon asserted that Jesus was both fully God and fully human, both at the same time, rejecting the dualism of docetism and adoptionism. And Orthodox Christianity has ever since held to this line. The language of the virgin birth had pro has proved helpful on this point and continue to do so until uh, really very recent times in articulating this understanding of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. However, I want to ask the question this morning of whether it remains helpful language for us to continue to use. What do we think is going on when we read those two passages from scripture that describe the virgin birth? Let's try a thought experiment. What if Jesus was Joseph and Mary's son, conceived in the normal way between husband and wife? What difference does it make? Certainly it makes no difference to any of Paul's writings. Nor does it make any difference to Mark's gospel or John's gospel. It makes no difference to the rest of Luke's and Matthew's gospels once we get past the first couple of chapters. It makes no difference to the book of Revelation, Hebrews, or the other non-Pauline epistles. It starts to make a difference when we get to the early creeds, as they sought ways of articulating their understanding that Jesus was the Son of God. It makes a difference to the Council of Chalcedon's negotiation of the pull towards docetism and adoptionism. It makes a difference to the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, the doctrine of the immaculate conception of Mary, but we've already established that these don't matter that much to us as Baptists. And I would just note, we don't say the creed in our tradition either. It might start to make a difference to the way we think about sex and sexuality and singleness and celibacy and love and marriage which might not be a bad thing, given the Christian tradition on some of that stuff down the last couple of millennia. It might start to challenge those who have a literal reading of the Bible and for whom taking any part of the biblical story as metaphorical or poetic is problematic. But again, some of us might not think that's such a bad thing either. It might not be so far-fetched to see the traditions about the virgin birth as stories that came into circulation in the decades after Jesus' earthly life, 
partly at least in response to similar stories from Egyptian and Greco-Roman mythologies, and partly in response to scandalous speculation about his early years, and that these traditions were taken up by Matthew and Luke and incorporated into their versions of the life of Jesus. So let's assume for a moment that Jesus was Joseph and Mary's son, conceived in the normal way between a husband and a wife. What then does the story of the virgin birth tell us? Do we just throw it out, or do we learn to read it differently? Can we move from a literal reading to a literary reading of these opening chapters of Matthew and Luke's Gospels? Now, I would suggest that there is great narrative beauty, symbolic power, and theological meaning to be found here. These stories challenge us to think deeply about what it means for God to be renewing humanity from within humanity. They challenge us to see in the person of the baby Jesus the action of God in initiating the inbreaking of a new world and a new creation with implications not just for individual salvation or personal spiritual renewal, but for the transformation of the world politically and economically, as those who are oppressed find liberation through the life, death, and resurrection of the child who is God lying in a manger. The story of a young woman chosen by God ahead of all male agency to try and bring to birth the transformation of the world for good has the potential to be hugely liberating for women in any time and circumstance of oppression and subjugation. And I think we're invited to hear Mary's song again with its challenge to the rich and the powerful and its promises of new hope to the poor and the homeless. I would want to suggest that we might want to allow Mary to interpret the significance of her own child to us, rather than simply allowing the voices of men to overlay the miracle of the incarnation with speculation about the state of her virginity. So whilst I would not argue that we should disregard the language of the virgin birth, I think it is helpful for us to know what we mean and don't mean by it when we use it in our songs and our liturgies. It roots us in our historical theological community. It takes us back to the early centuries of Christian theology. So similarly with the Council of Chalcedon, I would want to continue to assert that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And I do this because divinity and humanity are not the same order of thing. They're not competing for space in the body of a baby. The integrity of the humanity of the baby Jesus is not violated when divinity makes its home there. Rather, this is Jesus God with us, in the midst of life and death and rejoicing and suffering. This is Emmanuel God with us. This is the baby in the manger, the baby in Mary, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Our soul glorifies the Lord, and our spirit rejoices in God, our Savior. For you have been mindful of the needs of your people. You have seen and we declare that you, the Mighty One, have done great things for us. Holy be your name. May your mercy extend to those who follow your justice, who love without fear, 
who continue to press forward and do what is right when circumstances demand they surrender to their pain. For from generation to generation, you have performed mighty deeds with your arm. And so we plead, once again, scatter those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, the arrogant who crush those below them to gain higher grounds of praise, fame, and fortune. Once again, bring down rulers from their thrones who subject the vulnerable to a state of misery, who entrap their people in fear and pain so that they may live with comfort and power. Once again, lift up the humble, bring up the refugee fleeing for their lives, the poor who work long hours for little pay, the vulnerable who struggle to have their basic needs met, the desolated who experience the horrors of nature's wrath, such as our dear brothers and sisters recovering and mourning from the devastating tsunami in Indonesia this morning. For we know you are the one who has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the oppressor away empty. You are the one who has helped his servants and remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So may your love course through the hearts to bring life to those who have none. May your justice flow like a river so that your name shall be praised across all generations and all geographies by those who witness your great life-giving power. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.